Kia ora koutou. I'm Nick Tuki, New Zealand's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Tuki tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about the work being done behind the scenes by DOC's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Today, I am very excited. We have our Department of Conservation vet on the show, Kate McInnes. Tēnā koe, Nick. Ko Kate McInnes, tōku enoa. Kei te papa atawhai a hou e mahi ana. Pie. Uh, I want to talk to you desperately because I've always been um, a big fan of you and your work and especially because you've got such a unique role in the department so can you tell us a bit about what your role is and what it entails? Yeah Nick I mean I have the most amazing job it's incredibly varied there's no typical day so one day I might be writing a document with bureaucratic language uh, next day I'm out in the field collecting swabs from a lizard and then the day after that I'm teaching some people how to bandage a bird's wing so really my job is massively varied and it just covers anything to do with wildlife disease health preventative medicine that kind of stuff. That is such a huge array of work, and there's only one of you. So how on earth do you make that work? Yeah, really good question, Nick. So there's actually 1.2 of me now. I have another vet one day a week, and she takes care of all the wildlife rehabilitation stuff. That is her portfolio, and I deal with everything else. But I like to see myself as a cog in a wheel, so it's not actually just me. I have this fantastic network across DOC, MPI, conservation workers, universities, um, vets who do wildlife work. So really I'm just there making it all happen and giving a, a central focus to it, but then like farming the work out to all the fantastic people who are interested. How did you start your kind of career in this field? When I was a kid growing up outside of Brisbane in Australia, I love Skippy the bush kangaroo and I wanted to be a park ranger like Ranger Hammond and have my own helicopter and fly around. And then I got into vet school because I had lots of pets and loved animals. So I did that for five years, did dogs and cats and whatever wildlife came in the clinic. And then I came to New Zealand because I wanted to be a park ranger. I wanted to get back to what I wanted as a kid. And um, so I did that for a couple of years working for Doc. And then the Kākāpō team came along and said, would you like to be a ranger and a vet? And I was like, dream come true. So they put me in a helicopter, flew me out to Fenwaho, and my career began. Oh, and you would have just been imagining old Skippy the bush kangaroo Absolutely. that whole trip. <laughs> yep. As a little aside, someone told me that, because I used to watch Skippy the bush kangaroo, <laughs> I imagine some of our listeners probably never heard of it, but it was a great yeah. show for those of us in these slightly older <laughs> yeah. Gen oh, X no, I'm kind of my age bracket. Away. <laughs> <laughs> All you millennials out there might be struggling. Uh, and someone told me that, you know those scenes where you see Skippy like fly in the oh. helicopter and that it was... Um, one of those bottle openers that that yes. had kangaroo paws as yeah. the handle. Yeah, it wasn't the whole kangaroo flying that helicopter. No. <laughs> Childhood dreams crushed in an crushed. instant. Uh, so what's the difference, I suppose, from being a wildlife vet, particularly New Zealand native species, you've, you're probably mm. the only person in the world really with those kinds of skills, to a you know, domestic animal vet? 
Yeah, completely different. And I guess it's a big mind switch, especially so you've got vets and clinics who do dogs and cats and it's all about you and the pet and the owner. So it's a, a fairly small group of people making decisions. Then you get vets who work in like a clinic who do wildlife and they then have to consider what Doc wants about the wildlife. And then you have me and I'm dealing with populations. So I'm not dealing with just one lizard or one kaikapo. I'm dealing with the whole group of them either on that island or on the mainland. And so I've got to be a bit of an ecologist as well as a vet. And it's a, um, it's quite a mind switch to, to come around to that. But it's something that I'm really comfortable with and I really enjoy doing. That Actually, I want to pick up on that point about populations versus individuals because mm. it's something that we strike often in conservation. It's quite hard for the general public, I think, sometimes to understand yeah. um, that we are focusing on net benefits to populations. So what is the greater good for the whole of the population? And I think that can be really challenging when you've got an individual animal mm-hmm. that can't be fixed um, for people to understand how that fits into that broader picture. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess for me it's quite helpful to have Janelle Ward, my point two vet, taking on the wildlife rehabilitation because that's the one-on-one stuff and it is still really important. I think we need somewhere for injured wildlife or sick wildlife to go to be helped and sometimes it can make a difference. So like for a a kereroo, they spread seeds and so if we can keep them going in urban populations, we will have revegetation going on. So my backyard is actually half an acre and it's all revegetated because there's been seeds in the soil or seeds brought in by other birds. So that's you know, just a little local bit of conservation. But then yeah, the population side is, is quite a different approach and it, it is that big picture thing. And so you need to be able to switch your thinking from I have to save every individual to if I spend $10,000 fixing the leg of this takahe, will that actually fix the population? Or should I spend that $10,000 on, you know, a hundred new traps and someone to run them and we have 10,000 hectares of land for them to be breeding on. So it's all a bit of a balance really and I don't think there's one perfect way. I think we need to respect both and, and have a bit of both. Use all the tools. Yeah, all the tools. I imagine, so So I, a bit like you, I, I have a very similar childhood, lots and lots of pets, loving all the animals, bringing home all manner of things that my mum refused to accept <laughs> as pets. Very sorry about the rat, Oops. mum. Um, but one of the reasons that I chose to go on and do zoology and not follow vet a vet mm. career was I knew that I couldn't deal with some of the aspects of being mm. a vet, that it would break my heart. What is the hardest part of your job, do you think? So I guess it's the ones you can't fix and the, the problems that you get to too late. So I think the, the possibly the most um, satisfying but also worst experience um, of my kakapo career was when we had some birds die. And um, it was a very, very difficult time. But... Because we were prepared for it and we had systems in place, we were able to respond very, very quickly. We had external people like Massey University doing necropsies for us so we could diagnose what was wrong. We had um, we had community people donating stuff, whether we needed it or not. They just wanted to be part of fixing the problem. Um, and we had this random company contact us and say, hey, we've got a vaccine that will work for that bacteria. Do you want it? We'll, we'll fly it to you tomorrow. So it was just like... Yeah, you know, everyone got behind that. So it was a massive response. But it meant 
it, well, it was a great test of our system and the system worked really well, but it was also just tragic, tragic time. What, what is something about your work that you wish everybody out there in the, in the general public knew or understood? The thing I always say to people and I want them to understand is, is no one you know, works in a vacuum and it takes a village to you know, do everything. And so the thing I really enjoy and I want to promote the most is these connections between the researchers and the vets and the conservationists because the more people you have doing that, the more work we get done. So, for example, um, you know, when we're investigating a disease, we often don't have a test that will detect it. And so you then go out to these networks and you find, oh, someone's doing a PhD on you know, gut bacteria and they can run a next-gen sequencing you know, system, which is just like the, the gold standard for testing, and they'll do it for free. And suddenly you've got the, these amazing technological advances that you can't always know about because you can't know everything, but someone else comes along and shows you a new way to do it, and then you get a diagnosis that you never could have got by yourself. So, yeah, that's the, one of the best parts of my job, really. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of lucky because you're right at the cutting edge with those connections of, of some of the, the real game changers, I suppose, in um, wildlife vet science. Yeah. Well, and I think for that, you know, using the Hoiho example in Dunedin, um, they, they're a huge part of the local economy and the local identity. And they're actually in quite a bit of trouble at the moment. So we've got three different diseases that are affecting them. Um, we've got a coronibacterium, which is a, um, a bacteria that they get in the mouth and it causes these big ulcers in, in the chicks' mouths. And a lot of them will die. We haven't got a cure for that yet. And then we've also got avian malaria, which um, is, probably came over with exotic passerines and it's been spread all around the country because it's in blackbirds and sparrows and thrushes. So, you know, it's everywhere. And um, last year and this year we've had a big problem because of the big rains. We've got lots of mosquitoes and then the malaria's gotten into the penguins. Um, and then we also have what we're calling an unexplained mortality, but we think it's a marine biotoxin. And... Every now and then, we'll get a few penguins die of it, or one year we had many, like we had dozens of penguins die. And so the pressures of those diseases, one of those could be enough to push a, a rare or endangered species to extinction. But all three at once, hammering these poor little hoi-ho in one area, I'm actually really concerned about what the future is for those birds in that area. And so those 24 starving penguins that um, you know, Lisa O'Gill is looking after at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital, that might be vital to keeping this population in Otago and actually turning around the problem. So we really rely on people to be doing that work. Yeah, they, in that instance, they matter don't yes. they? They seriously matter. And you just touched on something that I think is um, really key to your work and then my work. So I'm always kind of like on the lookout for what's happening to our threatened species. And it's that cumulative impact of things like disease or increased predation or, or whatever, you know, uh, a species or a population can track along and it can deal with those kind of stochastic events. It can deal mm. with random things coming in, taking out a couple, take, you know, because that's part of how population um, kind of tracks. Mm. But what it can't deal with is when those numbers get squished down to really low levels and then they get a disease and then they get another disease, you know, that's almost a fast track 
towards yeah. the extinction cliff, isn't it? So that therefore your work and the work of the wildlife vets around the country becomes priority. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a really good point because I've talked to ecologists who go, oh, no, diseases are natural, so they should be in the population and therefore we shouldn't worry about them. And and that's fine if you've got a massive population and they've got all the food and habitat and no predators or, or natural predators. But as soon as you start tweaking all those factors, you're just putting more and more pressure on it, and that's when disease can turn around and become the problem. Apart from uh, the unfortunate circumstances of not just one but three diseases for the hoihoi, yeah. what are some of the other diseases that you're kind of working on or looking into? So we get um, <laughs> we get quite a few undiagnosed things. So we'll, we'll have um, uh, you know, some gulls in a die-off somewhere, and and often it comes back to nutrition. So it'll be a, a El Nino year, and there's just not enough food out there. Um, we have salmonella cropping up. Not usually as a disease, just as a, an incidental finding when we're you know, translocating animals and we're testing them to make sure they're not going to be typhoid Mary and you know, spread a new disease where we let them go. Um, but we did have actually salmonella twice in the hihi population on Tiritiri Matangi Island. And so that was um, really interesting. The first time we'd never detected it before in hihi and then suddenly we had um, a mum and her three chicks die and we knew that because there's people there monitoring every single bird in every single nest box. So it was a, a site where we actually knew what was going on. How does a hihi get salmonella? Do they eat a bad sushi or Such something? Such a good question. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right. Because I remember salmonella from my student flatting days. Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> how, but how, how does it get into our wildlife? So that one was really, really interesting because um, the I guess the health department is really interested in what salmonella we have when it turns up. So if you send a swab to a lab and they grow salmonella, it will go to ESR and they will type it and tell you exactly which salmonella it is because there's hundreds of different strains. And this was a strain that had only once been seen in New Zealand in Tauranga. And all we could surmise was that it had come in through, and this is horribly blaming the tourists, but we, we were trying to come up with a, a logical explanation. You get lots of tourists on Tiritiri Matangi. Um, it had only been seen once. It was um, probably in someone who had been visiting the country. And so we think somehow they hadn't used the toilet properly on the island and it had gotten into the water supply or something like that and gotten into these hee. And then once it got into the hee, because we have feeders for them, that was a site where they could spread it to others. So once again, it's difficult to know exactly how many it affected because you don't always find all the bodies because they're out in a forest. But um, there was an ecologist working on them at the time and he calculated that up to 25% of the population would have died in that outbreak, which is an outrageous number when you've got such a small number on an island. Well, and again, yeah. a population um, or a species that had actually gone extinct on the mainland exactly. and been extinct for 100 years. Uh, just touching on weird equipment, you mentioned equipment, and uh, I have a favourite exhibit at Te Papa, and I go, every time I go to Te Papa, I go and see it. Uh, it is by far the most bizarre conservation tool. I you couldn't you couldn't make that stuff up, 
And my favourite thing about it is there is a photo of a person wearing this particular piece of equipment, mm. and in that photo <laughs> is you. So can you please tell us a little bit about the, what is it called, the Kakapo ejaculation helmet that you yes. were wearing and that now resides so, in our National Museum? <laughs> I think this is my greatest claim to fame, and whenever my family or friends come to visit, I take them to see it. And <laughs> They think I'm extremely strange. So so this was a genuine and serious conservation tool, okay? So let's just put that out on the table first. <laughs> so, Don't believe so you. We wanted to find out if kakapo were duds or studs. So we had a bunch of boys who'd never managed to father a baby, and we didn't know if they were fertile or not. And so we wanted to get sperm and have a look at it. And one of the ways they do that um, in other endangered species programs, so it's not something I made up, um, is if they have an imprinted boy who thinks he's actually a human, um, he will come down and try and mate with people. And they've done this with kestrels. I think it was the Mauritius kestrel, where they would wear a hat and the boy would bonk the hat and they could, <laughs> they could collect the sperm. It was like, it sounded very simple. So, so we thought, well, the Mauritius kestrel, I think, is about, you know, 250, 300 grams. It's really light. A kakapo is four kilos. And we had one in our site, Sirocco, the spokesbird of New Zealand Conservation. Me old mate. Um, we've seen him on lots of uh, media where he's done his bonk the head thing. He said it to me. Yeah. And, and wasn't me. pleasant. <laughs> I wasn't prepared to have a four kilo kakapo sitting on a little hat on my head. <laughs> and I thought the hat might fall off. So I decided that a rugby helmet would be the way to go. And this is New Zealand rugby, you know, <sighs> I'm going to embrace it. So I went down to the shop, bought a rugby helmet and I thought it's not very attractive. And if he does produce the goods, it's just going to fall off. <laughs> so I got a big tube of silicon sealant and I covered the hat with silicon and then I made little rings of silicon. So there were little wells where the business could be done and I could collect you it afterwards. the helmet. I made the helmet in the backyard of my Berenpoor house <laughs> one sunny afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. So then we took it down to the island and we um, we went and visited Sirocco and he got very excited by the whole business. And so for about three nights in a row, I was out there in the evening with him bonking my head. He's quite heavy. He goes on for a very long time. He grunts the whole time he's doing it. And he didn't produce a thing. <laughs> so... I'm not sure if the concept was a failure or he just didn't like how we'd done it or if he just was never actually going to do it. But, yeah, so then we ended up with a photograph of it and Te Papa heard about it and we're doing a, a big exhibit on New Zealand and uh, and we gave them the helmet. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best work story I've ever heard. It is amazing, and you made the helmet. That's now my. That's that's oh, a piece of information I did not have. Well, uh, I feel like uh, you should have some kind of award for that. I mean, that, I feel like that's a New Year's honour. I, I felt of. there was like a bit of number eight wire going on there. You know, <laughs> we, we did it ourselves. We didn't pay someone ten thousand dollars. We just got a tube of silicon and went for it. I imagine you're in that position that lots of tradies are. You know, where everybody 
everybody wants advice on how to build their new deck or how to plumb in their new taps if they've got mates who are specialists in that field. Do you get lots of requests for random diagnosis from people? Oh, all the time. All the time. And actually, so you could go, oh, this is just too much. Or you could go, this is fantastic. This is like a um, an unpaid network of people doing surveillance. So there's the individual need. They want to know what's wrong with that bird. But I get masses of information through the process of getting sent all these photos or videos of you know things that are going wrong. And so... I'll get one one year and two years later, I'll get one exactly the same. I can go, hey, you've got the same thing as these people had. This is great. Um, but it, it, it can be a bit dodgy because they'll send it to me and I'll be out of the office. So I'll download it on my phone and have a look and have a chat to them and we'll work out what to do. Um, and that photo's gone into my gallery. And then I'll be showing some of my holiday photos and I'll be flicking through. And then this disgusting lump on the leg of a bird will appear as like a massive close-up photograph, which is kind of a little bit off-putting. And in fact, it it went to the extreme once where I had been making dinner and I was making nachos and I opened up the bag of corn chips and there was something wrong with them. So I took a photo, being a good citizen, and I sent it to the company and I said, oh, just letting you know, you know, there was something wrong with this batch. I wrote down the batch number off the bag and, you know, and this is what I found in the bag. I've attached a photo, except I didn't attach the photo of the corn chips. I attached a photo of a dead bird and I didn't realise. <laughs> <laughs> and I only found out after they'd sent me a big box of corn chips, <laughs> no note, no nothing, just these corn chips arrived by courier. And I mentioned it to my wife and she went, yeah, I wondered why you sent them a photo of a dead bird. And I was like, <laughs> what dead bird? Why didn't you tell me? So some poor customer service person at the corn chip factory got sent this horrible, horrible email from me and I never knew who it was oh. and I hope it didn't ruin their day. Well, you could have shut the factory down. Imagine exactly. it. I'm going, holy, we found a dead bird in a bag of nachos. Yes. I think <laughs> national I'm, incident. I think I'm on their list of complete nutters. <laughs> Just send them the chips and they'll go away. <laughs> that is brilliant. So I'm much more careful now. Oh, well, as well you should be and should probably always feel a wee bit guilty for that. Absolutely. Uh, you do, I mean, it's not all a glorious job. It's not all wrapping bandages around blue ducks and, you know, nice things happening, is it? You work with a lot of stuff that's kind of disgusting. Well, I think it all comes from your perspective, hey? <laughs> so, so one person's disgusting is another person's, oh, my God, this is the best lesion I've ever seen. I'm sending it to all my vet friends. They're going to be jealous. And so I think perhaps that's why I ended up a vet, not a park ranger, because I know gory is, you know, sad for the animal, might be really hard to fix, could be a massive problem. But there's also this morbid fascination with how big can uh, a yum an avian pox lesion on a leg get. And so when you get a really big one, you do actually share it with other people. And and part of that is like, oh, my God, look at this. But part of it is, wow, it can get this big. Have you seen one this big? And so something got sent to me like three days ago and I looked at it and I went, and they said, oh, it can't be avian pox because look at the size. And I could go back and go, actually, we've seen bigger. 
So one thing that I've always liked about you is you're prepared to talk to anyone about anything pretty much all the time, but that's been to your advantage, hasn't it? Because you've been able to gather more knowledge than you probably would have if you were, you know, in a box scientist just looking at your samples. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, hey, because, I mean, I would class myself more as an introvert than an extrovert, but when it comes to my job, I'm a massive extrovert because I love it. And so I think when you're doing something you really love, it, it can make you a much more outgoing, want to connect, let's all get together and do this stuff. Couldn't and, agree more. I'm yeah. actually a shrinking violet most of the time. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> if you're worried that there might be an outbreak of some, I don't know, some some heinous disease, <laughs> yeah. uh, how... How many bird samples does it take to... To, to know what's going to on. To hand on heart be able to say, actually, we've got a problem here. Yeah. So I think um, there's no fixed and fast rule, but the way we do it, and I think it's a really sensible way, and I've heard other um, countries doing it similarly, is one or two could just be a coincidence. When you hit three, you've got a pattern. Something's happened. It's, you know, it's not random. Have a look. And then even if you have a look and you find it was three different things, at least you know what that was. But if you find all three had the same thing, like those kakapo chicks, then you know this is a, a serious outbreak in that population and you need to do something about it. Just to change tack for a second, um, you know, we're here in Wellington today and one of the, the, the growing um, privileges of living in Wellington now is this kind of plethora of wildlife leaping over the fences of Landia and making itself at home in people's backyards. Kaka are an obvious one. Tui we've been used to for a long time now. Um, but people obviously get very excited. I had a mate ring me about 10 years ago and she's not a conservationist. Like she likes the nature, kind of like most people. And she phoned me and she was just screaming down the phone, Kia! And she said, there's Kia in my backyard. And she was so excited. It was about 7 o'clock in the morning. And she said, there's five Kia in my backyard. And I was like, okay, first of all, that's amazing. Second of all, they're not Kia, they're Kaka. Also cool, though. Um, and, and that was really the start for me of seeing that starting to happen around here. She was so excited and wanted to know what she could do. People want them to hang around um, and they often want to feed them. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that, and particularly with regard to Kaka, because I got involved a bit on this when, when we had the Kaka camp mm -hmm. with Wellington City Council. So what is the issue with people feeding um, wild birds like Kaka? Yeah, so there, there's quite a few things. So we do do feeding as a conservation tool. We'll use it to anchor birds to a new location. Um, we'll use it to boost productivity by feeding them something that's nutritionally balanced and promotes breeding. Um, and we'll use it if you know we're having a really bad drought or something and they need to be supplemented to carry them through. So there are good reasons for feeding them. People do it because they like having them in the backyard. Um, sometimes it gets a bit more extreme than that and they feel that the birds rely on them and they have to feed them. So I know of a person who can't go on holidays because they're worried that the birds will die because they rely on the food. So that's getting, that's extreme. These are wild birds and they should be able to survive in the wild and they shouldn't need the food. So a few problems occur with feeding them. Um, we get poor nutrition. So particularly with that kaka cam example, kaka will feed their chicks on stuff that's not nutritionally balanced. So if I put out lots of cobs of corn, 
They love corn. It's sweet, it's yummy, it's juicy. But it's full of phosphorus and doesn't have calcium. And so as soon as they feed that to the chicks, they get a calcium-phosphorus imbalance. Their bones won't grow properly. They'll get bent beaks. They'll get weak bones. And they'll actually get broken bones. And they're called folding fractures, where the bones are so weak, they just kind of fold. fold. It's, it's awful. So these chicks uh, are going to die. And so that's from – it doesn't have to be corn. It can be a whole lot of other things. Nuts. So. Uh, yeah, so nuts, some have a bit more calcium than others, but it's not a balanced diet. And they're more like chippies and ice cream. It's like, yay, big fatty, nutty food. Mm. But if that's what you ate all day, you're not going to have a good diet and you're going to get fat, you're going to get obesity problems, but you also probably don't get enough vitamin A and vitamin E. So it's, it's a really complex thing trying to come up with actually a good food for wildlife in whatever circumstance you're working in. One of the other problems, dear to my heart, is the, new, uh, the disease side of things. So if you put out a feeder, birds are going to congregate in a way that doesn't happen in the wild. And you need to keep that feeder absolutely spotlessly clean or it becomes a source of disease. So they'll be pooping on it, they'll be leaving feathers there, they'll be fighting with each other. And so you just get this whole change in the, the disease exposure and also the social behaviour. You're changing their social behaviour and you might have um, more stress in the, the less dominant birds and, and actually more stress in the dominant birds because they're trying to fight to keep the feeder. And they're not going out and doing their natural thing, which is eating a little bit, preening, sitting around, eat a bit more, preen, sit around. And the the other problem we get is because they've got all this fantastically nutrient, well, not nutrient, energy-rich food, it's like if you give your kids, you know, red cordial before dinner. Yes. <laughs> They're not going to go to sleep that night. So these kaka end up with so much energy and nothing to use it on. They don't have to spend it going looking for food. So then they start chewing on things and then they chew on lead head nails, which are on lots and lots of roofs around the country because we still have old roofs. And then they get lead poisoning and they may even pass that lead poisoning on to their chicks. So it's this whole, like, you know, I guess, um, snowball effect of you've changed their behaviour, you've given them the wrong food and then they start doing stupid things. They also end up annoying neighbours so yeah, that's they'll, right. They'll they... turn up at three o'clock in the morning, waiting for their five a.m. feed, and yeah. you know, they're noisy birds, and they can do a lot of damage. And they're ripping so, into people's trees, and then we yeah. get wild at them for doing something that we've yeah. essentially encouraged. I think that that thing about the raspberry cordial is just a great example, isn't it? Because if you've got wild neighbours in Wellington, you know, and you yeah. love having your car and stuff around, yeah. it's like you wouldn't give the neighbours' kids raspberry fizz. She really didn't like them, <laughs> uh, and so it's that feeling of you know that feeling of responsibility of of looking after that maybe might make people think yeah. a little bit more. So you can you can do it in a more natural way. I've got a rewa rewa tree in the backyard, and I regularly get kaka in that when it's flowering. And so I'll only see them, you know, for a few weeks or a month every year in that tree, but it's fantastic. And that's my little dose of I've got kaka in my backyard. So there's a, on the DOC website, there is um, a link to what plants you can grow in your garden to attract birds. Yeah, year round, Brilliant. eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you can make a bird garden. You don't have to then be spending a fortune on nuts or other things. You don't have to look after a feeder. You don't have to clean it or anything. You just let the birds be birds. That is a really great piece of advice. Well, I used to live here in Wellington. I lived in Nainai and I had a beautiful mm. kofi tree in my backyard. And at particular times of year, it was just full of kereru and tui. 
Lovely. I had a Tui that mimicked my landline though, and I think he did it on purpose. <laughs> so he would he would he would ring, and I'd be outside, and I'd run inside to get the phone, and would stop. And I'd come back outside again, and then I'd hear this. I'd be like, "What? What?" And I swear he was sitting out there laughing. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. And uh, look, thank you for this really fascinating discussion. I could talk to you all day and probably all week. Not so much about the gross stuff, even though that seems to be your favourite topic. But in particular, I think a lot of the things that you've talked about, even though I know a lot of the stuff you, you do is really technical and really scientific, I think the value that you bring is you're talking about things that people can do themselves you know, that whether it's in relation to planting trees around their, their backyard to encourage those birds and how to avoid disease and why we must keep our, our wildlife safe from disease. I just really want to thank you and acknowledge you for your hard yakka. Uh, My pleasure. And, and, and mahi. And, um, yeah, I look forward to kind of seeing where you go next. Thanks, Excellent. Kate. Thank you, Nick. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now and never miss an episode.